Pray with me, Father in heaven. Uh, it is our desire to know our Lord Jesus. For he said, if we've seen him, we've seen you. And so we pray that you would reveal him to us today, that you would take away any distractions, that you would um, not allow anything to get in our way of knowing him. So please, Father, do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to uh, Hebrews in chapter 13, please. Hebrews in chapter 13. I want to read verses 1 through 14. Hebrews chapter 13, please. Hear the word of God, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which... Uh, those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, those of you who are regulars with us uh, know this. For those of you who might be visiting, let me just share with you that we uh, don't pick a theme on Sunday morning and then try to find a passage that fits that theme. Rather, we take up passages of Scripture as they come to us uh, so that we can let God set the agenda for our morning worship and not me, which is always a problem. If you need to defer, defer to Him uh, on setting an agenda and not to me. It's safer, better, more edifying, more glorifying to Him. Uh, for us to do it this way, I, I think. Uh, our desire in doing that is to know God as He's revealed, as He reveals Himself to us, uh, sort of not to pick and choose the passages that we like as opposed to the passages uh, that we don't. I, I say all that simply to say that this, at least in my view, is not a terribly easy passage to follow uh, as we read through it. So what I want to do is to to. to Play connect the dots, connect verse to verse to verse to help us see how it flows together. And I want to do that without verse 8. Verse 8 is Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, I, I, I do this not, I, I leave verse 8 out at least in the beginning, not because I don't think it's important. I think it's very important. Uh, it's about Jesus. Uh, and... Uh, if the gospel is the good news of the kingdom, we know that Jesus is the Savior, High Priest, and King of the kingdom. So the message of the Bible is about Him, essentially, to us. And so it's very important that we know about Jesus. And this particular sentence about Him is very important. Uh, and so important that I want to follow the flow of this passage to, to try to think about why in the world the author of Hebrews plugged it in right here. Why he put it there and what it means in the context in which the author of Hebrews uses it. Now we know that when we hear the expression that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that there's some sense in which he's referring to the immutability of God, that is the unchangeableness of God. God doesn't change. 
And so we know that that's being applied to Jesus here, that he's, he, he doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, same today, same forever. He's like, as Kim was praying, like a rock uh, for us. Uh, we're not to take uh, Jesus for granted. Uh, we're to take him for granted, right? I mean, he's the rock uh, uh, upon which uh, we stand. And so he doesn't change. He doesn't move. Uh, and we know that. But, but the question, and so we could go all kinds of directions with that, couldn't we? But, but the author of Hebrews uses a sentence in this passage talking about making a point, talking about something. So I want to see what point he's trying to make so then we can understand in what context we're to understand Jesus as being immutable. Jesus as being the same yesterday, today, and forever. Again, like I say, we could preach a hundred sermons on this one sentence if we just plucked it out of the Bible. But I think that's uh, dangerous. And so I want us to take it in the midst of this context. So I want to play Connect the Dots from verse 7 through verse 14, essentially, without verse 8. And then we'll come back and get verse 8. Okay, are you with me? Uh, Verse 7 and verse 9. I want to connect these two first. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited, benefited those devoted to them. So I think the connection between verses 7 and 9 is this. He's, starting, he's talking about leaders who spoke the word of God to them. Uh, and so there's, there's something about this message of truth. And then verse 9, he's saying, don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings. So there's a true teaching that they had been taught by those particular leaders that had gone before them. And there is now brewing amongst them this strange and diverse teaching. And so he's saying, in a sense, I want you to follow after the teaching you first got. In fact, he says it. He says, consider the outcome of their way of life. Those first teachers lived what they taught. And you saw it lived out. And you saw the outcome of their way of life. You get the sense that he's talking in the same way as he did way back in chapter 6. In verse 10, he says, uh, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, that the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So you get a sense that the outcome of their way of life, those previous teachers, was that they inherited the promises. And that was clear. Uh, It's likely that those particular ones who went before them are dead now. And they saw the outcome of their way of life. If we're in process, we need to consider someone who's living by faith and and consider the outcome of their way of life. Consider, think about, uh, extrapolate out how that will play out. And then he says, imitate their faith. He doesn't say imitate their conduct. Because what he's after is imitating what motivates their conduct. Imitate what's in their heart that leads to their conduct. One of the great dangers of growing up in the church is learning to imitate the conduct of people who go to church. Now, of course, we want that to happen. We, we want our conduct to be imitated in some sense. But I think you see my point. We don't just want a bunch of nice people. That's not what we're after. We're after a bunch of redeemed people. We're after a bunch of repentant people. We're after a bunch of saved people. We're after a bunch of on-your-way-to-heaven people. 
And, and, and while we hope that means you're nice, just because you're nice doesn't mean you're one of that group of people. It's easy for our kids growing up, it's easy for us growing up to learn how to be socially acceptable in the life of the church and have everybody pat us on the head and say, oh, what a wonderful kid you are, what a wonderful person you are. But we have to understand that we're not called first and foremost to imitate anybody's conduct. That could lead to you being a religious fraud. We're to imitate what leads to godly conduct, which is faith. So he's saying, I want you to imitate faith. In previous generations, that's what made it dangerous to grow up in the United States. I don't know that that's true anymore, but people considering us in previous generations to be a Christian nation so that everybody who grew up a good American, showing the conduct of a good citizen, was a Christian. And of course, we know that not to be true. Uh, so again, the danger. So he says, imitate their faith. It's very important. So what's connecting all of this is there was this true teaching that was played out in a group of people's lives that were to imitate. And now he's saying there's also this, this strange and diverse teaching that we're not to be led astray from. And he says then this, for the heart... Uh, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So he says, because what we're really after through this sound teaching is that you would receive grace. Grace comes from the Word of God. The Word of God being a, being a means of His grace coming to us. When we listen, when we meditate on, when we obey the Word of God, we receive grace. We receive strength to help us in times of need. We receive that grace. And so he's saying, that's good. So take hold of that true teaching because that will strengthen your heart. This diverse teaching in some way says that eating this food will strengthen your heart. And he has a spiritual intent in mind. And he's saying, that isn't true. This strange and diverse teaching about eating food really doesn't cut it. That's not what it's all about. It's not a mechanical thing. It's not an ingestion thing, this Christianity. It's faith in God's word, in God that brings grace, and live that out. So you see the connection, I think, between verses 7 and 8. And then we have to ask the question, what does he mean? What is this strange and diverse teaching that deals with food? So then verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. So he's still in this eating thing. But now it appears that we, meaning Christians, eat in some fashion. But those who follow this strange and diverse teaching about food don't get to eat. We have an altar which provides food for us, in some sense, but they don't get to eat from it if they're involved in this other teaching. So we have to, have to ask the question, what's the food for us? What's the food for them? And who are these people who serve at this tent? And what is this tent? Okay? You hanging with me? Alright. Now, so verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest is a sacrifice for sin, are, uh, as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So we go, okay, this tent, book of Hebrews, Old Testament connections, this tent is a reference to the tabernacle, the old tabernacle. Uh, those who serve at the tent were the priests. 
those who went into the holy place and the most holy place in the tent were the high priests. They made sacrifices. Interestingly enough, on many of those sacrifices, the priests could eat the meat or the grain that was offered. Ah, I'm getting a picture. Right? So what's happening is that there are those telling these Christians, let's go back into Judaism, right? And let's go back, and, and, and you're really not saved unless you're getting this food from the sacrifice, the grain or the meat offering. And as long as you're getting that, that's holy food. In fact, in the book of Leviticus, it refers to this food as holy food. This meat, this grain that was sacrificed to God, but was left for the priests and their families and so forth, was holy food. And you can get a sense of that. Couldn't you get a sense that if you were at the Passover dinner, even, you'd see this lamb there and you go, oh boy, this is really holy lamb. I mean, remember what happened on the first Passover. They ate this and they got out of Egypt. So give me all the lamb that you could possibly give me. Let's, let's eat as much as possible. Grace by ingestion. You're right? Sure beats having to think about it, having to do it, having to practice it, having to be devoted to it, having to trust and love God. Just eat. That sounds, I've been on that diet. No. Um, but you see, don't, don't, don't think that. But of course, God never had the intention that there was grace by way of ingestion in the old covenant. All of that was a sign, just like this baptism this morning. All of that was a sign. This is point to God. This sacrifice was for you, for your provision from me. Trust me. Live in faith in me. And that's grace you see coming to us. It isn't just simply by ingestion. So you get the sense he's saying to them, uh, don't go back, for you never were to trust in that food in the first place. That food itself never benefited you. It was only the grace by faith that benefited you, you see. And so the key is to trust. In fact, he says this, that the one offering the priests weren't allowed to eat was the offering that was made for atonement where the blood was taken into the most holy place. That animal that had been slain was taken outside the camp and burned. Nobody got to eat that. And you remember on the Day of Atonement, you remember what happened. The priest would begin the day by taking a bull and he would sacrifice, sacrifice it for himself. And he would go and sprinkle the blood of that animal on the mercy seat so that he could be forgiven and make sacrifice then uh, for the people. And then he would take two goats. You remember upon this one he would take and he would slay it. And he would take the blood of that goat and sprinkle it on the, on the mercy seat in the most holy place. Uh, in, the, in the inner place, in the tent, in the tabernacle, later in the temple. And he would do that and make atonement for the sins of the people. And then that second goat, you remember, he'd lean on and confess the sins of the people. And that goat would be taken out into the wilderness so they could see their sins being separated from them as far as the east is from the west. And then those two animals that had been sacrificed for atonement, the bull for his own sins, the goat for the sins of the people, those two animals were taken outside of the camp because they were defiled. Because they bore, if you will, the sins of the people. They were defiled. And so someone would take them outside the camp and burn them. Nobody got to eat them. The only way to participate as an Old Testament uh, covenant keeper was, to, was by faith. There wasn't any food involved in it. It was only by faith. 
And he's saying, see, I even told you then it wasn't about the meat. That was just, you know, the priest got to eat, you know. Um, and so we, we let them eat the food. They worked that. That was their pay, if you will. It wasn't about the food. It was about the faith. It was about the trusting in God's provision of salvation, God's provision of forgiveness of sins, God's provision by way of substitute so that another could take your sins so that you could be freed of it. So it's not about the food. Don't get into that diverse teaching. You shouldn't have ever been in it, most certainly not now that Christ has come. Because if we go back to verse 10, he says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Because, you see, if you're still making those sacrifices, it means you haven't come to Christ. But there was an altar, once-for-all altar. We don't keep having an altar. There was a once-for-all altar upon which Christ died. That's where we eat. So what do we eat? Turn to John chapter 6, verse 51. It says, Jesus speaking. John chapter 6, verse 51. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Well, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So there's a sense in which we eat Jesus. We feed upon him. Now, of course he was speaking figuratively. We're not cannibals. He wasn't about to cut up his body and pass it out. He wasn't about to drain his blood and have them drink it. That wasn't really his point. His point is the way that you consume me, the way that you're nourished by me, is by faith. Notice up in verse 35 how he puts it in this same chapter. Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So do you want to be filled by Jesus? Do you want to be nourished by him? Do you want to be filled up by his flesh? How do you do that? You come to him. Do you want to be, do you want your thirst to be quenched by him? Do you want to drink his blood? How do you come? You come believing in him. And this isn't two separate acts to come and believe. You only come when you believe. And so it's one act of faith coming to him. The way that we feast at this altar of Jesus, in a sense, was the same way that they were to feast at the altar at the Day of Atonement. By faith. No food. No meat that day. Nothing literal, if you will, that they ingested. It wasn't about that. It isn't a mechanical thing. It's by faith. And so Jesus says, come to me. That's the altar we eat at. But if you go to any other altar, if you go anywhere else, if you offer any other kind of sacrifice, if you believe in any other kind of thing, then, then you're missing it. 
Because this is the only true way. Come to this altar. And then he goes on, then trying to pull this out even more. So, verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Here the connection between these two verses is that the the Old Testament atoning sacrifice was burned outside the camp. Well, Jesus was crucified outside the gate. He was crucified outside the gate of the city. So he's saying, okay, I'm just making this connection here. uh, So you can see. And he suffered out there in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. There's a sense in which, you see, Jesus became defiled by our sin. He took our curse upon him. And he came outside the camp where it was the place of defilement, this place of curse. Because that's where we are. And he met us there. And he died for us. That we might be sanctified, that is, set apart by God to be holy before his sight. One author put it like this. He writes, by suffering outside the gates, Jesus identifies himself with the world in its unholiness. While we are unable to draw near to God because of our sin, God draws near to us in the person of his Holy One, who on our unholy ground makes his holiness available to us. In exchange for our sin, which he bears and for which he atones on the cross, through the shedding of blood outside the gate, he sanctifies his people. He makes them holy. The concept of sanctification here is elsewhere in Hebrews being that of rendering acceptable to God through the removal of defilement and guilt and thereby setting apart as holy unto the Lord those who by their disobedience and ingratitude have alienated themselves from their creator. Jesus comes to the very place of defilement. And he dies for us. He exchanged his holiness for our unholiness. He takes on our guilt and gives us his righteousness. Right there. So then it shouldn't surprise us. The next line, therefore, verse 13, let's go to him outside the camp. I mean, if that's where he is, let's go to him. But understand, he's telling this group of Jewish Christians, if you go to him outside the camp, they'll be mad at you. And you'll suffer reproach. And he's saying to us, if you go to Jesus outside the camp, and you leave the camp, wherever your previous camp it happened to be, family camp, business camp, education camp, sexual impurity camp, thieving camp, lying camp, being nice to impress everybody camp, right? You leave the camp, and you go to where Jesus is, what you're saying is that without him I'm defiled. And what you're implying to the world is, without him, you're defiled. And they could get angry at us for that. But he says, you've got to leave that and go outside the camp. Go, go where you haven't been. And embrace Christ crucified. Again, as we've said so many times, we decorate with crosses. And that's probably fine. They would have never decorated with crosses. Uh, in the first century, I don't believe, because the cross to them was simply a symbol of death. It was a symbol of humiliation. It was a symbol of, of being a criminal. Uh, it was the symbol of embarrassment. And so when we identify with a cross, it confuses everyone. Why do we need such a cross? Why do we need to identify with a cross? And we have to be honest and say, that's what I deserve. But Jesus took 
for me. And so you see, we're to be strengthened in our hearts by way of grace, not by way of food. And the way that we're strengthened by way of grace in our hearts is we go to this Jesus outside the camp. We go initially to him to be saved, to receive acceptance by God through him. And we camp out there at the cross. We continue there at the cross. And so the way our hearts are strengthened and comforted and encouraged is by going there and realizing, yes, this is the truth. This is true. Everything else is false. This is true. That there is salvation through faith in Christ alone. For he took the penalty for my sin and gave me forgiveness and gave me his righteousness. That is true. And that's my strength. And I know because of that, that God accepts me. That he doesn't accept me apart from Christ. How could he? He's holy and righteous. I'm not. And yet, through Jesus, he accepts me as his own because the blood of Christ has cleansed me. That's that's the water symbolism of the baptism. The the, the blood of Christ cleanses me, right? By faith in him. And he gives me the righteousness of Christ so I can stand in him and stand before God and he accepts me. That's my strength. How is that my strength? How does that strengthen my heart? Because first and foremost, I know that whatever happens to me in the course of my life isn't the wrath of God. It's discipline. It's training. It's an expression of his love for me to enable me to walk in holiness. So I know that whatever happens is God's grace to me Because he accepts me in Jesus. And he's training me and teaching me and disciplining me and helping me to grow and to walk in in holiness. I said in the second service a couple of weeks ago, I don't know if I said it in this one, so I'll have to say it because I love this line. There's a two-parter. I'll give the second part in a minute. But there's a missionary agency that trains its missionaries. Did I tell you this story? Trains its missionaries. Yeah. There you go. Don't you like that? That when they're going to be threatened with pain... To, real, to, to think in their minds, you're threatening me with holiness. Because God will use this for my holiness. When we experience difficult circumstances, what's happening is we should be anticipating holiness happening in our lives. And I know sometimes the, 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 the circumstances of that situation is, can be very, very painful. So this isn't a flippant thing that we say, oh, holiness is coming, hallelujah. But we know that to be the case, and that's our comfort. That's the strength of our heart. There's absolutely positively nothing you can eat, even a Hershey bar, that will give you that kind of buzz, that will give you that kind of strength of heart. Because you know that's true, and you're not making it up. You see, so many times, so many people, if they don't have Christ, need to make up a scenario in which bad things work out to good. Bad things are, make me stronger in some way. And you have to say, well, so what? Stronger for what? But we have it on the very word of God, you see, that we're accepted by him. And therefore, whatever happens in our lives comes from the hand of a loving, sovereign, wise, heavenly father. It isn't wrath, but discipline and training. We also know that when we sin, He forgives us. 
because he's our heavenly father and he'll bring us to the point of repentance and confession and all of that because he does care for us. We know that he'll walk with us at every moment in time throughout the course of life. We know that as long as we have him, we have all that we need and we know that we have him because of Christ. And we know that he won't withhold any good thing for us. For he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also, along with him, graciously, kindly, even miraculously, give us all things? We know that. That strengthens the heart. That's why the author of Hebrews says, I want you to know that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no change in that. There's no change in the purpose for which Christ came to save his people from their sins. There's no, perp- there's no change in the purpose for which Christ came, and that is to, to take many sons to glory. There's no purpose for, in the reason that Christ came, that we might be accepted by God. There's no change in what Christ achieved. He achieved the salvation of his people from beginning to end. There is no change. Nothing can ever change that. What he did yesterday is still in effect and being played out in what he's doing today and will do forever. And so this is it. We can bank on it. He isn't fickle. We don't have to worry. We don't, we don't have to, to you know, play the game. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. You know? We don't have to play that game. It's simply settled. For God so loved. And we can bank on that. We don't have to play the game. He'll be merciful to me. He won't. He'll be merciful to me. He won't. We don't have to play that game. Because His mercy was expressed to us in Christ Jesus. We have an inheritance that is certain and sure. Notice what the author of Hebrews tells us about Jesus. If we go all the way back to chapter 1, I'm not going to read the whole book to you again. Though it wouldn't be a bad thing. Just a couple of few passages. Verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He's spoken to us by His Son. What His Son said and what His Son did yesterday is still applicable today, still true today, and will be for forever. We don't ever have to question that. Whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That's still true today and will be true for all of eternity. He will always be the perfect reflection, the exact imprint of God. To see Him will always be to see the Father. After making purifications for sins, He made purification for sins. The purification for sins that He made is true for all time. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That means He's the King. And he still is and will always be, never any question about that, uh, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he's inherited is more excellent than, th- than theirs. The name that he's inherited, as we read in our profession of faith today from Philippians chapter 2, is the name Lord. He's been given a name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every name will bow in heaven and on earth. 
Lord. They'll express, Jesus is Lord. Okay? And that will always be true. For instance, chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That was yesterday. Still true today, made like us in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He did, in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. When he paid for our sins, how do I say this? He paid for our sins. That's what propitiation means. That he satisfied the judgment, he satisfied the wrath of God for us. It's done. There is no case in heaven against us. That is done. And there never will be a case in heaven against us. Those for whom Christ died. Those who believe. It will never happen. There will never be a clerical error. There are errors by clerics. But there will never be an error, a clerical error uh, in heaven. For the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's true today. You need help? We go to Jesus. Chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, yesterday, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, meaning that he achieved our eternal salvation and he's alive today to make certain that everything that he achieved is fulfilled. Chapter 6, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He already went there and he did it. And since he did it, it's done. He went behind the, the curtain. He, he deposited, if you will, his blood. Uh, he paid for our sins. That's certain. Then chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they pre were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanent, permanently because he continues Forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What he did yesterday was to secure our salvation. What he's doing today is because he secured our salvation, he's interceding for us that our salvation would be secure. And he would do that forever. I think that's all we need. But that's why the author of Hebrews said Jesus is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. He said it to secure us. He said it to anchor us. He said it to give us hope. He said it so we would go nowhere else for grace. Let's pray. Father, pray for me, for us. That we would not despise your word. We would not despise the grace that you give to us through Jesus. We wouldn't go anywhere We'd take in nothing else. We'd believe no one else. We'd follow none other. But Father, that we would walk with Christ to trust Him, to follow Him, to obey Him. We pray that nothing else enters us, that we rely upon no one else for our nourishment, to satisfy our hunger, to quench our thirst. We thank You for the assurance 
that we can trust him. Because what he did, he does and will do forevermore. And that is save his people from their sins. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that there will be elders available to pray, so please take advantage of of that. They'll be in the office area. Uh, The response to the benediction is that particular verse 8, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, with a little addition, hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him, who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence, and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hallelujah.